in your supply chain cost, your largest cost is the movement of goods. And it's anywhere from 45 to 75% of your supply chain. You know, that's the goods coming off the boat or, you know, off a truck and finally getting into the hands of the consumer. And that consumer could be you or I, or it could be a company. Now, 52% of that transport cost is in the last mile, meaning the last leg of that journey for the the goods to get to you. So for example, you, you order a stick of deodorant online. You always wonder, how does somebody profit sending me one stick of deodorant? And the answer to that is not very well. Unless they're right next to that consumer, it's very difficult for someone to profit on sending a single unit. Yep. The other driving factors are your employment, you know, your employment costs. And it's anywhere from you know 15 to 25% of your overall supply chain costs. And then there's your inventory, which is as low as 15%. Finally, you get to your real estate, which is three to 6% of your supply chain costs. Now I'm giving you all these, these numbers and whether or not you follow me, you could definitely understand one fundamental thing, which is if real estate is your smallest number on your supply chain costs, do you think a company would care to pay double the rent that they're paying today in a year from now, if it means that they can reduce their transport costs or their employment costs. And given how small the margin is on the single unit of goods that people are now selling, it's that more impactful to be close to that consumer. So although real estate or industrial real estate tends to be the lowest cost in your supply chain, it's the most fundamental because if you're not next to those consumers, you can't profit on sending that single unit. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me on the Fort today. I have an incredible episode with Sean Dalfin, the president and CIO of Dalphin Industrial on with me today. Dalphin owns 30 million square feet of last mile class A industrial across the US and Canada. They have offices all over the country and are active in some of the most prolific markets. And his take on the industrial market today, his understanding of the supply chain and how the world is continuing to reorient itself as we come out of this pandemic was truly fascinating. As someone who spends a lot of their time focused on industrial, I got more out of today uh, than I've gotten in a long time. So hope you enjoy and thank you again for continuing to join me on this journey. Sean, welcome to the show today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me, Chris. I'm excited about this conversation. Um, Can we just start kind of just a little bit about kind of your story growing up and then how that led to your current role today? Sure. So I grew up in uh, Montreal, Canada, and my father went into the real estate business. You know, I'll, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about my father because that that uh, was instrumental for me. Okay. Uh, my father had a retail company. He had department stores in mostly tertiary markets in the in uh, East Coast Canada, and um, in the early '90s, uh, that company. Uh, went out of business. Didn't quite go bankrupt, but it went out of business. And, you know, he's an example of someone who, you know, no matter what's thrown at him, he's going to get up and uh, he's going to do what he has to do to feed his family and succeed. And uh, the first thing he did was ensure that he paid off every single predator and didn't go into bankruptcy and that he found a job for 397 of 400 employees that he had. So it left him with nothing, but he had his his morals and his ethics that, that he stuck to. And those were most important for him. And then he started buying properties in the U S he started on a new business venture and that was buying value add or very opportunistic properties, uh, you know, first in Florida and then, you know, in different markets throughout the U S. And so, uh, when I was around 13, you know, I knew my father was in that. And I guess, uh, I learned through osmosis. Uh, it was a smaller company bought about a building a year. And so when I was uh, in my you know, university years, I opened a software business and started selling, uh, it was actually camera 
picture and video related software to i or to phone then back then it was like the motorola razor so so most people wouldn't even know what that is today but anyway you know i did quite well on that and uh i parlayed that money into uh real estate and uh i be i actually became a broker and started investing in deals that i was finding it just so happened that i partnered with my father on uh, a few deals and uh ended up working together and uh, that's how we at least got at least how I got my start in the business and so I was very grateful that he had a, a platform for me to go into and uh, he was able to uh, mentor me in a lot of ways I love it you said you kind of learned by osmosis is there anything in particular that stands out that he did with you at a young age that kept you kind of hungry and motivated and and interested I can't tell you, Chris, that there were things that he did on a business level that really stick with me at a young age, but it was more on a personal level. Things like taking me to homeless shelters and having me hand out donuts or bagels to homeless people and ensuring that uh, I learned that irrespective of someone's you know, wealth, that we're all people and we can all learn from each other. And that was, for me, really critical. And um, it was something that has stuck with me and, and uh, more so that you, you know, his comments on friends and business is uh, that of course you can have friends invest with you because if you're honest and upfront about everything uh, and as long as people are rich enough to recognize real estate or any investment is not certain uh, and can absorb a loss should that come to fruition, then um, you're always going to be on the up and up and you can sleep at night. And so those are more of the, the key values. Uh, when I joined this firm, though, we was a much smaller entity. We had Gmail addresses. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, uh, not to belittle it, it was simply, it was different than the way we do business today, but it was definitely the precursor to what we do today. And the values and fundamentals are still there, uh, which is honesty, integrity, and everything that you do. And uh, you look out for the investor first, and uh, the rest will work itself out. I love it. So just diving in a little more, can you just paint a quick picture of what the company looked like? Maybe how many assets y'all had or people or what did it look like when you joined him? Because I know it's a lot different today. Um, When I joined him, it was, I would say there was maybe a little under 20 people in the company today. Uh, We're not huge, but we're over 60. Okay. Uh, We have offices uh, throughout the U.S. We have offices in uh, Dallas, Orlando, Atlanta, uh, Cincinnati, Denver, San Francisco, Montreal. Then we bought properties that really uh, we we weren't focused on a specific asset class. It was more about, uh, you know, we would find a a shopping center uh, that we could convert to a thriving office park. And my father is a lot more creative uh, an individual than I am. Uh, and so together we made the decision. I had started our fund business and I made the decision we were we were going to focus on something and, and be really good at one thing. And that was industrial. And today, uh, you know, we're approaching 30 million feet and it's just a different a different business. But it was from our, you know, sticking to those values that that he baked into everything that we do, as well as the uh, focus on one asset class and the collaboration. That led us to where we are. What year did you make that decision to kind of plant your flag in industrial? That was in 2009. Okay. You made the comment that you uh, you launched the, the fund business. What was the kind of the thought behind that? How were y'all raising capital before then? And, and why did you decide to launch a fund business? My father is an exceptional salesman. And so he's somebody who can take a building and go out there to a whole bunch of investors and sell the concept and easily, easily get it done. I'm more of a deal guy. I wanted the ability to sell a concept and then go out and execute on it. And through a lot of debate, uh, we went from syndicating a deal at a time to at probably the worst time to raise a fund right after the GFC or in the midst of the GFC to uh, raising capital on uh, effectively a concept. And I can tell you a little story, which to some might be interesting. I won't mention the individual's name, although uh, I can say I I still know him and and I'm friends with him today. There was a particular real estate icon in New York uh, that I got an intro to. And I went 
to meet with him at his office. And he had this office overlooking uh, Grand Central Station. And he had this patio that you could go outside and he had some, you know, admin or somebody bring us espressos out there. And uh, I went to go and pitch him on our fund and, you know, uh, maybe being a part of the fund in one way or another. And so he said, okay, kid, what's your, what's your idea? And I said, well, I want to raise uh, a value add industrial fund. And this is what I want to do in short, but let's go through our deck together. And uh, he said, well, tell me something. You want to raise a blind pool of capital. And what kind of debt do you want on this fund? I said, well, we want a subscription line or we want a, uh, uh, a credit facility. He said, non-recourse. I said, yeah, absolutely, non-recourse. So it's never going to happen. You're never going to raise the money and you're never going to raise the debt. So I said, well, I don't think you know what you're talking about yet because we haven't even gone through the pitch book. And he said, no, I don't think you know what you're talking about. You're never going to raise it. <laughs> and so that meeting was about five minutes long. And uh, I left there and I said that... Uh, we got to prove this guy wrong. And years later, uh, we're buddies. And he has since said to me on a number of occasions that we owe him a cut of the action for being a motivator. <laughs> so, um, you know, I guess uh, that was one of the many times that that uh, I and our company was pushed down and told we couldn't do something. And yet we accomplished it. How large was that first fund? It was $36 million, And we had uh, $36 million of debt as well. And actually, a local a local bank here. And how long how long did it take you to deploy that? You're testing my memory here, but I think it was probably over an 18 month to 24 month period we were able to deploy it. Um, our first asset that we acquired was actually in Dallas. It was uh, a property called the Firewheel Distribution Center, and uh, it was uh, a defaulted note that uh, BBVA Compass had taken back the time and uh we bought it at 25 bucks a foot and a lot of people told us we paid too much it was brand new <laughs> i love it so, today the thing's worth at least 130 bucks a foot oh so. i love it i love it can you paint a little bit of uh, again i know you have you've been in the fun business now for it's like 12 years i actually haven't had um many people that are uh institutionally back but can you maybe paint a little bit of a picture of the benefits of working with institutional capital versus maybe a syndication kind of private capital type of model? Um, we have both, Chris. We have okay. uh, institutional capital, but we also have ultra high net worth and family office money. And so uh, the benefits of institutional capital are, you know, uh, some of the obvious ones are that it's bigger checks. And so you have to raise money from less people. But there's reporting requirements and all kinds of stuff that go with it. And the fees tend to be lower uh, the larger the check is, although not significantly. The high net worth side, you know, you're speaking to a lot of investors, but uh, you know, we have investors on both fronts who have been with us through all of our vehicles. But I can say that the big benefit in raising a fund versus raising deal by deal is that um, you can see an opportunity and you can execute on it. Yep, And uh, people know in the market that you have the ability to close that transaction that you're, you know, uh, bidding on. And they have that faith in that, you know, something, there's not going to be a hiccup in the market or in the economy in some way that's going to prevent you from raising that capital and you're going to drop the deal. So it takes that uncertainty out of the question and uh, it gives you the credibility as well as the uh, ability to simply find an opportunity and execute, even if it's on a short fuse. When you're raising a big institutional fund, do y'all raise it in-house or do you hire a placement agent to help you get all the capital together? We've, we've done both. Done both. We've done both. So um, we've worked with placement agents and we've also uh, done things in-house. So I'd say that we're more today doing things in-house than we are. Uh, that's just because we have the relationships already. Yeah. You know, and, and today our... You know, upcoming vehicles are much larger than they were before, but we have the relationships to do it. And so um, you don't need to go to a third party if you know the person, you know, you know, the person or, or the institution already directly. And you could just give them a call. Once the relationship is built, it becomes easier. But uh, there's benefits in doing it both ways. And uh, we still utilize placement agents for things called a top up. So if we're, you know, uh, we've raised 
let's say in a, a certain vehicle, a 300 million to get us to the 350 number. You know, sometimes placement agents can be really effective depending on who you use for that. What's a top up? A top up is just, let's say you, you have a target number that you want to get to. And you have only using, let's say, a, uh, I'll use the same example of 300 million, but you want to raise 350. The 50 million is the top up. Got it. So it tops you up to, to get to that. Got it. Before we dive into a little bit more just on the industry and the different types of industrial, can you just paint a picture today of like what your role is like as president and CIO? You mentioned that your dad was a salesman. You're more of a deal guy. You know, how do you think about your job? The way I think about my job is to know what I don't know and hire the best people who are good in those areas. And so uh, my job is really to be the problem solver on a higher level and to find and um, work with the best people and let them do what they're good at, get out of their way, but have an understanding of the key decisions that are going to be made and have my mark on all those decisions. So I set, I set a vision and they uh, you know, turn it into a reality. At, at the highest level, and I must pretend that I know nothing about industrial. I probably don't know near as uh, what you do, but let's just talk about just kind of the landscape today. If, if you're making your pitch for why industrial, what are the big kind of macro fundamental things that are appealing to you right now and that are giving you confidence that industrial is um, has a lot of room to run? What What kind of things do you look at? The driver that a lot of people look to, and especially, you know, post-pandemic, it's even more true, uh, or I guess we're in the middle of the pandemic, so during the pandemic, even more true, but it was the percentage of retail sales online versus uh, in-store. And so pre-pandemic, you were probably ranging from anywhere from 10 to 12%, dependent on the uh, stats you were looking at. Mm -hmm. um, today, uh, it's been increased exponentially. You effectively had what was going to happen anyway, which was the uh, move from, from brick and mortar to online happen in what would have been maybe a 10-year period pushed into three months, yep. four months, uh, or you know, now at this point, it's since March, but you know, uh, in much shorter period of time. So what I found is a, a great driver, and it may sound crazy to some people, but the first thing that I personally look at is what do I do personally? And personally, I have a lot more packages at my door than I've ever had before. An example is my, my grandmother, may she rest in peace. She had a rotary phone. If she were alive today, she would be forced to order her stuff online. And so it's a forced adoption. And that forced adoption isn't going away. And then you factor in, what are your supply chain costs? In your supply chain costs, your largest cost is the movement of goods. And it's anywhere from 45 to 75% of your supply chain. You know, that's the goods coming off the boat or, you know, off a truck and finally getting into the hands of the consumer. And that consumer could be you or I, or it could be a company. Now, 52% of that transport cost is in the last mile, meaning the last leg of that journey for the the goods to get to you. So for example, you, you order a stick of deodorant online. You always wonder, how does somebody profit sending me one stick of deodorant? And the answer to that is not very well. Unless they're right next to that consumer, it's very difficult for someone to profit on sending a single unit. Yep. The other driving factors are your employment, you know, your employment costs. And it's anywhere from you know 15 to 25% of your overall supply chain costs. And then there's your inventory, which is as low as 15%. Finally, you get to your real estate, which is 3 to 6% of your supply chain costs. Now, I'm giving you all these, these numbers. And whether or not you follow me, you could definitely understand one fundamental thing, which is if real estate is your smallest number on your supply chain costs, do you think a company would care to pay double the rent that they're paying today in a year from now if it means that they can reduce their transport cost, or their employment cost. And given how small the margin is on the single unit of goods that people are now selling, 
it's that more impactful to be close to that consumer. So although real estate or industrial real estate tends to be the lowest cost in your supply chain, it's the most fundamental because if you're not next to those consumers, you can't profit on sending that single unit. So all this means to me and to those in our industry that we are seeing a metamorphosis, the true metamorphosis of shopping habits today going from brick and mortar to online and that industrial is in fact the new retail. That is the probably the best three minutes of understanding industrial that I've heard all year. And I read a lot on this. Well, thank you. I've said it a lot. So if you didn't understand it, I guess I was doing a bad job. So the, so to, to recap that, it's the, the total cost of the supply chain is, is 52% of that is the cost that it takes to get the product the last mile. 15 to 20% of that is the employment costs. And currently, 3 to 6% of that is real estate costs. You got it. I love it. Is there anything else, you know, macro level or maybe even diving into certain markets around, you know, population growth? Is there any other big fundamental things that you look at? Or is that kind of that tells the whole story, what you just said? Um, It tells the whole story on a high level. But what we do is something called a um, last mile analysis. So every property that we buy, we run what we call our internally a last mile codex. And what it is, not to bore you, but in short, is there is a... uh, a list of different variables that we use to determine on a national level what an ideal last mile location would look like. And then we take that national score and the fundamentals of a given market and we say, what are the ideal locations within a given market for last mile? And so, for example, you take a market like Dallas and you X different areas on the map. And then we look for properties that meet our criteria within those, you know, X quad or those quadrants in a market. Yep. And so we're fi- we're first looking what is the best last mile location, and then what real estate fits the criteria we're looking for that make it an ideal last mile warehouse. And so that's really what we do uh, on on a more micro level. Do you do that through some type of technology or algorithm that's constantly kind of learning, or how do you how do you guys execute that? that analysis? Oh, that's our secret sauce, man. And yeah, it is uh, through algorithms that we've uh, created. uh, And it's through a really in-depth analysis of last mile fundamentals over years. And those fundamentals change and they change in a given market. A great example is two investments we made in Dallas for those who know the Dallas market. One of them was a property in um, Mesquite. And so uh, as you you had mentioned you owned a property in Garland. So, you know, um, next to Garland, Mesquite is probably the best blue-collar workforce in the city. And another investment we made, which is in McKinney. And so you contrast those two investments. Uh, one of the investments, our main focus was to be close to the workforce. And being close to the workforce requires a different type of facility. We knew that a larger facility would attract more companies because, you know, it's going to be a facility that they're doing a lot of fulfillment from. In McKinney, the bays are smaller. And that's because those who are located within that McKinney market are pretty much fulfilling orders, uh, many, to the local population there, the last mile within that McKinney-Allen area. And so those are very distinct properties. And so one is made up of small but national tenants, you know, anywhere from 25 to 50,000 feet in, say, McKinney. And the other in Mesquite ended up being occupied by Amazon uh, as, you know, one of their one of their fulfillment centers. And so we targeted different buildings in those markets based on the dynamics of those markets and how we viewed the last mile being um, used in those locations. So it's distinct it, there is, it's an art and a science. Yep. I'm assuming the majority of your deal flow is coming from the broker network. Or are y'all identifying these through your uh, algorithm or these subsets of buildings? And then how are you kind of attacking those? How are you turning them into deals? We attack them on a number of fronts, you know, uh, and those, yes, a lot of them do come from brokers and they're marketed. 
uh, I would say that it's probably 45% of the transactions, not total transaction dollars, but 45% of the transactions are, are marketed deals. Although that could be larger uh, from a volume standpoint or total dollars put out, uh, those are the ones that are marketed by a broker. And the remaining 55, and I'm just using a ballpark, are individual one-off deals that we're finding in the markets by targeting specific properties that meet our criteria and often using brokers within those sub-markets to put in the offers for us. Got it. So we, we really do use the brokerage community, but um, a lot of our deals are off-market. And uh, I mean, we have the philosophy that we'll put in an offer on properties, you know, 10 times. I mean, it, it, it's happened before where it's, you know, 10 times until we get, you know, a hit on it. And we just keep offering based on updated financials or you know, if it, the property makes sense for us. And uh, you have to throw a lot at the wall to see what's going to stick in today's world. I love it. After looking at your website, it shows that y'all uh, kind of play in four different kind of verticals, core plus, value add, opportunistic and development. We don't have to get super granular on each one, but can can we kind of go through what those mean to you? Uh, what a deal looks like that's core plus versus opportunistic, and maybe the expected kind of returns that are that lie within each bucket. Yeah. So as I said, our website is not up to date. We're updating it now, but uh, in general, here are the buckets that we play in, and that's the value add slash core plus space, the core, and um, the development space. Okay. And those are really our distinct buckets. Um, opportunistic uh, is not something that we do today because opportunistic back when we did opportunistic was more you were buying distressed assets. And in the industrial world today, that is not really a, an opportunity that we see for at least the quality of assets that we're buying. It's very rare. It happens, but it's very rare. So on a yield standpoint, pretty easy the value add mid to high teens, the development is, you know, high teens, 20s, and your core probably ends up at a, you know, maybe an eight or nine. And 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 can you just paint a little picture of what a core, like what the fundamentals of a core deal is versus a value add deal? What are you doing differently in each one? Sure. Well, value add, I mean, we're creating value in some way. Uh, and that may be through aggregating a portfolio, and it may also be through through uh, you know scaling back the office in a given property and uh, uh, breaking up the suites differently, or actively managing that property and driving rents. That kind of thing would be value add. So there's some work to do in terms of generating that value, and there's also risk, like anything else, associated with it, and therefore. You know, uh, uh, we want a higher return. And the core deal is um, we would buy a property that's fully leased and typically, you know, longer term. Mm-hmm. Could be five years, but typically it's probably, you know, your, your 10 year type leases. And uh, there are more assets where we're focused on getting a good cash on cash and buying very high quality real estate that at the end of the day, if the tenant leaves, we're very comfortable that we can release at a very low number, at least uh, improvement number. So it's very leasable property, well located, but you know someone has created that value already. And what we're doing is aggregating those assets and creating diversification and buying some real property that has long-standing value, especially in today's low-yielding world. Yep. And then, how do you? What are the marching orders for your development team? Uh, is there a certain like quota you're trying to hit or certain type of deal you're trying to do? Or how do you think about development? Uh, well, we have a pipeline of around 10 million feet now. And um, our development team is, um, it's no different than, as I mentioned, our focus on the right markets. I mean, we, we take real estate to a really fundamental basic level. And that is, if you're going to build, then you got to be doing so in a market that has the demand and doesn't have too much supply, and where you can be really well located in a market, and the last being where older assets are trading 
for much higher than replacement cost. If we can build to perfection in a market that has really strong demand drivers and there isn't a ton of competition out there building similar product, then we'll do it. And so we see that as a really good risk reward, uh, you know, investment. And so that's why we're building right now. And, you know, some of the markets are Dallas, uh, Austin, Lehigh Valley, Nashville, uh, Cincinnati, Atlanta, Orlando, to name a few, uh, where we have, you know, developments going on. And they're, they range from single buildings uh, or, or a small park to, you know, three million foot uh, parks. So it's really dependent on the location and, and the demand drivers there. Is the majority of that spec or is it build the suit or mix of both? How do you think about that? We always budget everything to be um, spec. Got it. But uh, we've have had a lot of uh, great surprises uh, in that, you know, it gets leased much sooner than we anticipate. But our philosophy on going spec goes with the fact that, as I talked about earlier, your movement of goods is 45 to 75% of your supply chain costs, so your biggest component. And therefore, when a, a logistics consultant is working with a given company on where they're going to you know, distribute and fulfill their goods from, mm-hmm. the last thing that they really do is they circle a given area and they say, okay, go find a property there. And they usually have a very small amount of time, much smaller than they used to have, to find that property and occupy the facility. And so built to suits do happen and they are prevalent. But uh, what we found is that if you build it, you're going to have a lot more activity because most companies really have a three to six month window that they, they use to find the fulfillment center that they're going to occupy. Do you do any forwards, either selling developments as forwards or buying from others? Uh, yeah, we do do forwards. Not in uh, well, we we sold a forward that wasn't in our fund. We sold to Brookfield, uh, actually in DFW. Uh, it was one point two million feet. Uh, we did that, you know, a few months back, and we've also bought, you know, a couple million feet forwards over the past year uh, from groups like Crow and others. Uh, and we're, we're structuring a couple right now. And so uh, if we can take the development risk out there and, and we still there's still plenty of meat on the bone, um, we'll, we'll do that all day long if uh, the opportunity is justified and, you know, the markets are, uh, you know, have the demand drivers. So for us, it's simple. Get the best real estate, get it at or below replacement cost or as close as you can get to for that and built the best quality portfolio that's diversified, and you're going to have a great outcome in the end of the day. I love it. Do you still participate in kind of co-GP and JV deals? We do it, but sparingly. There has to be a unique situation for it. You know, I can think of a couple that are similar to what you're mentioning right now, uh, and we do do that, uh, but it, it it's got to have a story to it. There has to be a real reason behind doing that because our investors entrust their money with us. And so we need to be the one in the driver's seat. And so uh, without fail, if we are doing something like that, uh, we're certainly the the group making the decisions. That doesn't take away from the groups that we're working with and their capabilities, but our investors didn't invest with them. They invested with us. For sure. Is there is there like certain situation that comes to mind that you that you would opt to get into a JV deal, maybe a land seller that doesn't want to sell but wants to contribute? Yeah, or... exactly. You, you, you got it. That's a situation where you have uh, somebody who's selling a piece of dirt and they, um, you know, we, we have it today. Uh, literally today, I just dealt with a situation like that where they believe in the, the project, uh, but they don't have the equity to develop the property, uh, nor do they have the wherewithal to, you know, do all the complex things associated with entitlements and all those other things. And so, um, you know, they have a great piece of dirt and they're going to roll that into the venture. That's how it's structured. And so they're able to participate uh, in the the project on an unpromoted basis, and they're able to, uh, you know, not only get money for selling the land, but also uh, profit from the project coming to fruition. 
And that's, that's the type of situation that is more common that we would deal with on a joint venture. But otherwise, it has to be a unique situation because uh, most importantly for us, we need to be in the driver's seat because uh, we have a fiduciary to our investors. Yeah. Is there a data point that you look at or some type of macro thing that would, you know, there's a lot of talk, uh, you know, again, in the news, which is is take it with a grain of salt, but is industrial going to get overbuilt? Can you just shed any light on where you kind of think we are? Uh, maybe it depends on the market, but is there anything in your horizon that shows we're anywhere close to being uh, oversaturated? I think you said it, man. It depends on the market, but I don't think we're anywhere close. I think the demand for industrial space is just going to keep going up. Yep. Now, we have to remember one thing. We can't take all the growth in industrial with a grain and salt uh, with a grain of salt and say that it's you know across the spectrum because one third of the leases that were signed last year were done by Amazon a right. third yeah that's huge so that's one company then again Amazon is taking the place of many other companies today and that's a whole other conversation but um, we see there being a lot of runway we think we're in the early innings of uh, a long ball game here on the industrial front and nationwide i would say for the most part um, you're not going to have an oversupply you may have an oversupply for some quarters or maybe a year or two but it'll get absorbed yeah uh, we're making a, a a dramatic shift and i've heard people say well you know, look at all these dead malls that we can convert. Well, the problem with dead malls is that you have, you know, politicians and citizens who don't want a mall to become a distribution center. And so you have to get people, you know, okay with that before that really happens. And nationwide, because we worked on a bunch of projects like that, you're not seeing that so widespread. The pain has to be enough that it's a blight and somebody needs to convert it before you really see that come to fruition. And when that does happen, there's a lot of money that goes into, you know, demoing a site and, and also the, the land basis gets pretty high. So the fact is, is that for the demand for industrial infill, see it this way. And you know, Chris, from being in the business, there were higher and better uses for land infill than building distribution centers. You could build hotels, you can build retail, office, multifamily, you name it. So the returns on industrial simply weren't sufficient to build that stuff. So there's a finite amount of sites and product out there to fulfill the demand on all these companies needing to be close to the consumers in order to profit off selling that single unit to them. Yep. I just always put it back to that one stick of deodorant or you know one widget that someone is selling. They really have to have either a really big profit margin on it or alternatively they really need to be really close to the seller to the uh, uh, buyer for them to profit and so you know you, you have onshoring also that's another thing that's come about with covid uh, it makes a lot of sense for people to build more goods at least closer to home so they don't have the risk of of uh, not having inventory and you have a lot of manufacturers who are doing things like they never did before, which is cutting out the middleman. And instead of selling to a retailer, they're selling directly to consumers. And so you, you know, you, you have those, all those companies who are in e-commerce, those manufacturers who are now in e-commerce because they're selling directly to consumers, and you have your traditional industrial users all competing for the limited space that are out there. Yep. And there's more innovation happening. There's more tenants starting to enter the market that were never there before. You got it. A couple more questions just kind of on the, the business side of things. And then I want to ask you a question about, you know, having offices all over the country. But the first is you mentioned everybody's favorite company, Amazon, and you've done some deals with them. Is there anything, you know, interesting or something cool that somebody would like to hear that uh, what it's like to work with them, maybe how they build their facilities or or is it is it just like working with any other tenant? No, Amazon's not like any other tenant. And I can just give generalities because yeah. Amazon is also pretty pretty important for them is confidentiality. Yep. Uh, but I can tell you that they're extremely innovative. Yeah. And so they are the pioneers in the sector and they have the resources to do so. So they aren't like any other tenant. I mean, they'll put an extraordinary amount of money into a facility uh, and some may think it's crazy, but I don't. 
And I, I, at least I personally recognize that they're innovators and they're seeing a step ahead and they're recognizing what they need to do in order to profitably send that one item to that consumer. And all their innovation surrounds that, you know, point of profitability and, and, uh, uh, efficiency. And so, yes, they spend a lot more money and do things in different ways than any other tenants, quite frankly, that I've dealt with. And some of the things that they've done, and we have a lot of facilities with them, you know, we would have never conceptualized that they would do there. But when you look at it, it makes a whole lot of sense because you understand their thought process around it. So I, I would say that they're an incredible company and I only have the most respect for Amazon and uh, you know, I'm a big user of their, <laughs> uh, their product or their, their website or their, their app. Uh, there's always Amazon boxes at my door and I, I own their stock and it's one of the, uh, the companies that I think is the, I think it's right now the greatest company in America in my mind is yeah, Amazon. It is. It's, Absolutely incredible. I had posted on Twitter to some people that I was having you uh, on the uh, podcast, and one of the questions that came out was that y'all own properties down in McAllen near the border. And I don't know if you own anything in El Paso, but the question was just any insight on the border trade market, how, how you're thinking about that is maybe more manufacturing moves from China down to Mexico. We actually don't own anything anymore okay. right now. Uh, we, we, we sold all our product in uh, the Valley. My comment on it, I think that it uh, can be an, a really an excellent market. I can tell you we went in there um, and we've evolved a lot since we first bought assets. But when we first bought assets out there, we bought a portfolio that was owned by, I, I might be wrong, I think it was Principal and uh, Ridge Development. But it was... It was a sizable portfolio and class A properties. And I mean, I thought it was like a, a pure distribution play. I didn't realize, and I don't think our team realized that once we learned more about the Valley, we recognized it wasn't a distribution play. It was more about NAFTA at the time. What they were doing is they had primary manufacturing facilities or maquiladoras, as uh, they call them in Mexico, making a lot of the goods and they were applying the finishes to these goods in these facilities or sometimes the more costly components and then slapping a made in America sticker on it. And, uh, that was really the primary use of most of those properties. It was manufacturing based and it was cause they had a, a, a dual operation in Mexico. And, um, I think that those markets, the more onshoring happens, uh, those markets are going to explode with demand. There's also massive populations out there. And so uh, I, I think they're really bright spots for investments. And I think that anybody making investments out there is actually going to see a lot of appreciation by simple virtue of the fact that you have a lot of people who want yields in industrial and they're not going to be able to get them in the primary or you know top tier secondary markets. So they'll end up going to the El Pasos and the Macaws of the world. Yep. Okay, one more question on the company, and then we'll we'll bring her down to some fun personal questions to end it. But um, you're in 16 states. You have offices all over the country. Uh, my first just question is, how are those offices set up? Are they, are they kind of uh, small deal teams in each market that are funneling up to corporate? Or how do you kind of manage everything across the country? The offices have different... I mean, traditionally, we have full teams in most of the offices. Uh, although there are some offices... Um, if I thinking about it, there's two offices where there's not a full AM team in there or construction team. And it's just more of a, a satellite where it's deal guys and analysts, yep. but we like to have a full, I think we're in more than 16 States. Um, as I said, our website is inaccurate, but I don't have the, the number of States in front of me that we're in, but I can tell you that we have pretty defined and clear roles. We're a vertically integrated platform. And we recognize that a lot of the value that we create is because we're able to add value on the asset management, property management, uh, construction slash development side, as well as the acquisition side. And the more these individuals all work together, there is able to be, they're able to be synergies that there otherwise wouldn't, you know, be able to, to happen if, if they were sitting in different places. Now in today's COVID world, I mean, a little bit, a little thrown on its head, right? I mean, uh, you have these zoom calls and it's not the same. I can say that it's not the same, 
but we, we've managed to be very productive. And I still feel that there's nothing like face-to-face interactions and being able to, you know, hear what your asset manager is doing. Uh, if you are the property manager or you're in the acquisition side, you're able to, everyone's able to play off each other and learn more about those areas and work together in a much more efficient manner. So we like to structure our offices in that way. So the boots on the ground are all working on that sector. And when you set a full team, what does a full team mean to you? Like an asset manager, acquisition, property management, analyst, how do you describe a full team? Yeah, you, you got it. Yeah. Now, there may be multiple property managers. They may be multiple analysts or development guys. There may be one or two. It really is dependent on the velocity in that given market or where we've chose, you know, chosen to make an investment and, and grow more in a market. But basically, all areas of the company, all, all the different teams, you know, or the, the market-driven teams, you know, accounting aside, which is is uh, consolidated into our Montreal office. But accounting aside, those different areas of the business, we want, you know, at least one or two members to be in each of the offices. Yep. I said there was only going to be one more question, but you mentioned Montreal. And can you paint a little picture on the difference between ownership in Canada versus the U.S.? Or do they virtually operate under the same kind of rule of law and guidelines? I would say Canada in general, from a real estate standpoint, at least the primary markets, which are Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, and to a degree, Calgary, those are your only markets there. And it's pretty much what we call a functional market, meaning you have big institutions and they're the ones buying all the you know, quality real estate. And there's very little room for smaller competitors in there in one sense. Also, the vacancy rates tend to be lower. It's harder to build product, uh, although we built there. We built Puma's head office and distribution center in Montreal. Uh, I think in general, taxes are higher in Canada. We all know that. Uh, um, and the bureaucracy is much more significant. And uh, we think, at least to date, there's a lot more opportunities here in the U.S. That doesn't mean that we wouldn't look there because we're we know the markets real well it's just uh there are differences and it's just like uh there's different markets in the u.s you know you take chicago versus san antonio and the reason i chose san antonio is because it's a more call it conservative place and san antonio has you know they're not so bureaucratic right although each county can be different And Chicago is very bureaucratic and you have high taxes. And so you contrast those different things. Same thing when you look at a, you know, Canada, it's not so dissimilar because you want to buy the best quality real estate at the lowest possible price in the best location. And so the fundamentals are the same, but you know, the tax laws and stuff like that is, is different. But, uh, I wouldn't say the differences are that stark. Yep. All right. Just one more question. I'm sorry. You're just too smart. Uh, just a little yeah, color on the capital. wife. She doesn't think that. <laughs> We're in the same boat. A little a, a one, two minute riff on just the capital markets. Uh, obviously, in March and April, everything kind of shut down. But I think I know your answer that the capital markets for industrial are alive and well. Are they better than they were pre-COVID now? Or where, where do we sit today as in relation to maybe pre-COVID? Uh, you'd have to talk to our capital markets group for the best answer for that. But I would say on a higher level that the capital markets today are better than they were pre-COVID for established operators um, in primary and top-tier secondary markets. I mean, uh, money's cheaper. It's there, especially with groups like us uh, who don't lever a whole lot. Uh, you know, we have 65% at a maximum on a fund fund level. And uh, I am telling you, I mean, I don't remember a time where capital markets were better. I just think everything shut down for a period of time in COVID. And we bought a bunch of stuff then, too. We weren't afraid. We, we did it anyway. But today, capital markets, I mean, everyone wants industrial on their balance sheet because it's the one product type that I used this example in, in an interview the other day. But I think it, it holds weight no matter when I use it. It was like there was a tornado and you get out of your storm shelter and your house is the only one standing on the street. Yep. You know, 
all the other houses have varying degrees of damage. And that's the industrial world today. Yep. It's good to be an industrial. All right. A couple personal ones and we'll, we'll bring it home. Is there an experience kind of early in your life that you kind of that comes to mind that maybe changed the trajectory of your life or kind of made you who you are today? After doing 105 of these uh, interviews, it's it's always a common theme that there's usually something that happened early on that kind of set the tone for uh, later in life. And so I didn't know if there was anything that came to mind to you. I think there were a lot of experiences. I think a lot of uh, at least material success and, and, and I guess drive that I've got have come through pain. It was never good experiences that um, gave me the will and the drive to succeed. I think um, without getting into too, too much detail, I mean, we've all had some level of, of, of stress or strain in our lives, but uh, I think for me, as well as many others, it was those experiences that weren't so much fun yep. um, that made us make a decision to move our lives into one direction or another. And for me, uh, some of the worst experiences were the best ones in the end of the day. What's the best advice you've ever received? Um, it's a good question. Maybe to not answer questions you don't know the answers to. I love it. <laughs> uh, I, I don't. I, I I I can't tell you that I can think of the best night. Oh, uh, you know what? Uh, uh, there is a piece of advice that someone gave me early in my career, and uh, it will. This person told me that it'll take you twenty years to build your name and one deal to f it up. Yep, I love it. All right, last one. What's your favorite book, personal or business? Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Man's search for meaning. One. Man's search for meaning. I will put it on my list. But uh, I will have. I do have another book that I will answer that. My second favorite book, and it is my favorite book. Uh, it is actually our company bible, and every new employee uh, is required to read it and actually answer questions on it. And that is uh, extreme ownership. We have the exact same book that people read in their first thirty days when they start. I love that. Well, Spark eye. I love it. All right, Sean. Thank you uh, so much. Thank you for your time, Chris and Johnny. And we will, uh, I'll reach out to you uh, to get lunch or something sometime in the next couple anytime, quarters. Anytime. Anytime. I'm around, man. You just let me know. I would love it. All right, buddy. Have a good one. You too. Take care. Bye. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.